for the, uh, for the blessing of the music as we brought the good news into the Lord's house. Uh, I want to encourage you to pick up the fourth point supplement if you don't have it already. Uh, now it's an opportunity for us to uh, open our Bibles up and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 2. Before I go there, I bring up the word cloud and remind you that we're in a Bible-believing church. Uh, there should be no fear, no concern that, uh, that heresy is going to be taught here. We want to communicate the whole counsel of God. And that's found in the 66 books of the, of the scriptures. And uh, as, the, as the word cloud emphasizes, if you are a Bible-believing person, then you're going to hunger and thirst for it. Jesus said that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And uh, when Paul was discipling somebody in the New Testament era, he said, the word of God that you learn from childhood has been able to make you wise to salvation. It's opened your eyes of faith to see who this great God is and his great salvation. And therefore, in the end of 2 Timothy, he said, every one of these God-breathed words is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that the men and women of God might be prepared or complete to do what you need to do. So that's why being a Bible-believing church, it, it launches out with the gospel to communicate it all in many different ways, even as we're going to be doing in the Dominican Republic, taking the good news from this book and sharing it with others that they too might know the gospel. Now, if you will, turn in your Bibles, let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant word. It's inspired and it's infallible as was given in the originals. We're going to be looking at the epistle to the people in Rome. Uh, it's called the Book of Romans. Uh, it is actually a 16-chapter letter. Uh, it's fairly long if you, if you actually read it through. One of the bigger epistles of the New Testament, we're at the beginning section uh, the first section, of course, in chapter 1 is, hey, I'm Paul. Um, I have a heart, a calling from God. I have a longing to preach the gospel. And then as he begins to talk about the gospel, he says, I want to reveal to you the things that matter most. And he says, it's the righteousness of God. But once he shares the righteousness of God, then the problem is, is that you and I don't have that righteousness. So how is it good news? Well, he starts to explain it, and, he, and by going through the first three chapters, the second half of chapter one all the way through, the, through basically chapter three, you get this instruction about the fact that, hey, you don't have righteousness. In fact, you are unrighteous. Uh, the text actually goes on to say that these people are ungodly. And that's where we are right now. We're picking up in chapter 2. I want to look at the first 6. You're going to see how that expands to the first 11. Uh, but this is a, a shorter message, but it's to prepare us to come to the table today in communion. This is God's word. Let us read it reverently. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge... Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice those things. So do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them for yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you're... Because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day when God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 
Those are the first six verses. And the tendency here, as we did last week, is to focus on the, the people who are judging. But I like to focus today on the judge. Not the people who think they're the judge, but the one who actually will. If you look there in verse 6, you can see it. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. God is the judge. Theos, the one who created, is also the one who sits on the throne. He sits on, on, on the judgment throne, and he will make the judgment that counts. So when you realize that, then in the first parts of the verse, there's people who think they're judges, people who think they have the right to judge. But then he ends up saying, no, when you make your judgments, it's almost like you're pointing like this. You ever done this? How many fingers are pointing back at you? <laughs> okay, I actually think one, two, three. Okay, <laughs> three are pointing back at me. One may be pointing to you. When you end up making judgment about everybody else, making accusations, many times you are pointing back at your own shortcomings. Uh, we call that transference, where you accuse people of the things that you are guilty of. You try to condemn them for things that have already been condemned in your own life. That's what you find at the beginning of chapter 2 here. But let's go on. After we've established that God is the true judge and that God is going to render true judgment, look at verse 7 to 11. He's going to render to each one according to their works, verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, the judge will give eternal life. That's good news. Verse 8, but... For those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In other words, the judge is going to mete out a judgment of wrath and fury. He goes on to explain that a little bit in verse 9. There will be tribulation. There will be distress for every human being who is doing evil or who does evil. And then he makes this comment that's the essence of the today's sermon to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You may not think that that's a big deal, but I want you to know that by bringing this emphasis out even to the people in Rome, he's teaching a lesson to, to believers of all time. And he makes that point clear at the end of verse 11. So let me go and pick up in verse 9 and read it through 11. There will be tribula tribulation. There will be distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew, also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew and also to the Greek. Verse 11. For God shows no partiality. I want to be focused on today about God the judge who, do, who shows no partiality and why that text is brought to our attention. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, take the reading of the word and especially the preaching of it and make it an effectual means of salvation. Today, as we prepare to come to the table, I pray that you might strengthen our faith. Give us the helicopter view that we might see you more clearly, that we might see the beauty of holiness and the ugliness of sin, but also see the value of every soul. Today, as the, apostle, the apostles' words to the believers in Rome or to even to the people of Rome 
Lord, I pray that as we look at more, look more fully into this text, that we may be looking more fully into the eyes of our loving Savior, who shows no partiality. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have, if you keep your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at chapter 2 quite a bit. But I begin with some words that I've been hearing. Uh, it's, it's like a, not just a steady drumbeat in the background. It's almost like you almost hear this drumbeat being increased. The cadence of it is on the rise. And you hear these words, equality, you hear equity, you hear equal justice, you hear diversity, you hear reparations, you hear affirmation, care, affirmative care, you hear affirmative action. You hear all these terminologies that are going around in our culture. They are being taught to our young people. They are being included in all the training that you're getting in most of the big uh, corporations. This is not something that might come. It's something that's already here. When you hear these words, the sad thing about it is that they don't get to the things that matter most. When you hear equal justice or equity, when you hear this demand for diversity or, as I mentioned, um, reparations, it's a sense, it, it gives you a little taste of something that's good, but it's been polluted because it's godless. The presentation that they give you is a man-made solution. It is something that they are creating rather than something that God has revealed. And as a result, it is another gospel that's not good news. And if you buy into that other gospel, you will not have the peace of God that passes, uh, passes understanding. You will not have that peace that's mentioned in Romans 8, chapter 1, where there is no more condemnation. You have a, an enjoyment of God. Now, if you go down this path that the culture is pushing, where you push everything has to be fair, everything has to be equal. In fact, if it's not fair and equal, then they're going to make it fair and equal. When you have that mentality that's being advanced, you are in need of good news. And the Bible brings it. In the book of Romans, he's explaining it. They have moved past from the concept in our country of harmony in the melting pot to re-engineering through, through this new manipulation. They, they are not satisfied with the way things are, and therefore they want to bring about change. Now again, this is the same equation of a gospel. We, we see we're sinners, and we want, to, we want to be changed so we can go to heaven, and the only way that we preach the gospel where it changes us, God changes us. They're ending up asking to change your behavior, to change your attitude, to change your goals so that you can have a heaven on earth apart from God. Well, these humanistic, uh, these humanistic efforts uh, are, are not going to bring about that, that peace because it's not built on love. It's not built on the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and tenderness and kindness. It is built on these other things that take tastes of love, takes tastes of patience. And then all of those things, they repackage it and say, but we're going to do it with our own efforts. Today's text is an anchor in the indictment against mankind. 
You see, nothing new is under the sun. And the very kind of things that we're facing, another gospel that is being advanced, the wokeism, they might call it, it was being advanced in, in the time that this book was written as well. 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, you find that the people are still leaning on their own understanding. They're trying to find solutions. They're trying to find satisfaction. They're trying to find that, that which is elusive to fill that God-shaped vacuum in their hearts. They can't find it. In chapter 1, the second part, there is the godless ancestors. Since creation, they have, they have not thanked God. They have not given God the glory. And as a result, if you remember what we were reading in chapter 1, those ancient ancestors, they ended up doing things that are unseemly. They're doing things that are unnatural. They're doing things that... I don't even want to repeat. I don't want to read Romans 1, the second part, anymore. Because when I read it out loud, it, I know some people. I see people on television who are proud of doing these things. And they're, and they're excited to stand up. In fact, the, the one that surprised me yesterday was reading an article where somebody who claims to be a Christian doing all of these things and being mad at the rest of the Christians that they haven't awakened to the reality that this is just what happens in 2023. You see, the ancient ancestors leaned on their own understanding, and the Bible says God stepped back his grace. He pulled it back, and he pulled it back, and what you had was a culture and a society, and you had a world which was living as if there was no God. You have a world in which people do what they want to do, or as the book of... Um, uh, judges says they do what was right in their own eyes. Now, this could make you sad. But I want you to know that this is, not off, this is not off of the script that God has established. Remember what Jesus told us about the future? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be. And, if he, and he described what it was like in Noah's day, and the people were eating and drinking and, and having fun. They were doing marriage and doing whatever, but they were eating and drinking as if there was no God. They all felt that today we live, tomorrow, or we lived that way two days ago, three days ago, five days ago, five years ago, ten years ago, a hundred years ago. They ended up getting into a rut of life, and they say, there is no God. There is no day of accountability. And by the time they got to be 900 years old, guess what? I think they probably said enough. I'm tired already. <laughs> and I think that that's why they would do whatever they wanted to do because tomorrow we die and there is no God, there's nothing more. Now, once you realize that mentality, that's not really very much different from the mentality we're dealing with today. And by way of introduction, I'm letting you know that the, the ancient ancestors' mentality of stepping back away from God and living a godless life, it led to debauchery. It led to terrible actions. And, and it was popularized. And, and, and chapter 1 concludes, they not only did them, but they were happy with other people doing them too. And isn't that what's going on now? Why do you think you have to have special um, celebrations of satanic activity or you have to have different things that are promoted even during the, the middle of, of the Super Bowl? You know, it's, it's amazing how they're trying to recruit people to do what they do too because they're not satisfied in just doing the bad things. They'll only be satisfied, so they think, if everybody does those things. Chapter 2 comes in with the second part of the indictment. 
It's not the ancient ancestors, but now there's two more groups that are dealt with. It's the moral rationalists, and secondly, it's the moral religionists. Last week I was talking about the moral rationalist who does a lot of judgment. That person is not going around saying that they're doing all the bad things. They're the ones that are saying, you are doing all the bad things. They're the ones that sit in judgment. They like to be in the position of authority, and they think that accusing people, well, that's what Satan is good at anyway, they just point the finger at everybody, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, yeah, that's not good, and, and they'll spin it. The irony is that last week we talked about that the people who make those judgments, the moral rationalists, they actually don't realize that they're pointing three fingers at themselves of condemnation. Yep, I'm guilty of that. Yep, I'm guilty of that. Yep, I'm guilty of that. We're going to pick up next week about the moral religionists, the people that grew up with religion, the people that think they're pretty smart and can look around and see all the bad things, but they think they're okay. The moral rationalists, on the other hand, they don't even think about themselves because eh, they're okay. They, they, they don't sit in any kind of, they don't have any fear of condemnation because they really don't have a fear of God, but they have a sense of what's right and wrong. These people over here, the religionists, they know about God. They have their Bible. They had their upbringing. They had their Sunday school classes. They have their special podcast preachers. And they think they've got their act together. In fact, some of them think that they've arrived. And chapter 2 is all about the fact that there's these people and these people that are moral, but that's still not good enough. So I take you to verse 6 again. And I want you to notice about God. God is the one who makes the determination whether moral rationalists or moral religionists are going to be able to get to heaven. God is the one who's going to have the final word. And that's been true from creation, and it'll be true into eternity. God will have the final word. He is the judge. Now, what do we know about the judge? If you go to verse 11, if you bring that up for me, you'll see that that one word pops up there that is almost like a, um, a thumb on a hand. It's unique. And in verse 11, as I think it's there, God shows no partiality. No partiality. That's interesting. And as we come to prepare for the Lord's table today, we need to know about God not being partial. Some of you may not totally grasp this, because it, it, it has to be explained. And the people in Rome needed some explanation, which is why Paul not only gives you an explanation, but he makes the statement, God is not partial. Okay, let me explain partiality, and then I'll get to our three points. So one of the best ways to explain partiality is by an example. If you go to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you're going to hear how, and that was the first book of the New Testament that was written. It was written by James, the half-brother of Christ. And uh, when he writes to people there in chapter 1, he's telling them, hey, you're going through troubles and difficulties. But in chapter 2, he says, watch out for this partiality. Okay, now you're, you're peaked up. What is he talking about? He says, it's favoritism. Those of you that when you come to your gatherings, when you, when you come to the table, when you come to get with other people, you look around and you say, hey, that person has a gold ring. Or, you know, that might, that might be in the old days that if you had a gold ring, that would mean that you were what? You were rich. Okay, how many do you think, had, had, do you think it was commonplace for everyone to have a gold ring? No. 
And what he's saying there in that early days, that poverty was significant, but when you found somebody that was rich, that was, had the gold ring, and they would come into your fellowship, what did most of the people do, even the Christians back in James's time? They said, hey, come on over and sit with me. Or come on over here and sit at one of these high seats. We, you, you, should, you should have this over here. Now, do you understand what they're doing? Do you understand what the whole problem was that James was trying to address? It was a type of favoritism. It was unequal treatment or unequal treatment. And basically it was that you started to, to pick the winners and the losers. You started to go around and as an individual, you were becoming a judge. And you were going to say, these people are going to be favored and these people are not. Or should I turn around? These people are going to be favored, and these people are not. Did it feel bad? If you... Well, of course it does. It's not fair. Okay, and that's what, what partiality was being brought out. And James was telling the people, the new believers, don't fall into that trap. Don't do like the secular world. And don't just favor people because they're rich or they're educated. Don't just favor people because they look like they can get things done. He says, no, that's not the way God works. I believe that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 picks up on that same point and he says declaratively, God doesn't do partiality. God doesn't have the, what we would say, the favored treatment when it comes to justice. You know why God is not, uh, why, he, why he can't give favor treatment? Well, it's because of truth. And that's the first point in the sermon. God is not partial when it comes, when he serves as a judge of truth. Because God cannot play around with truth. He cannot just say, well, you got 80% of the truth, so I'll let you, let you slide for the rest. God doesn't grade on a curve. And just because you got a little more truth than somebody else, it doesn't mean that, that you are going to get the approval and the applause. You're not going to get that commendation, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or if I take the text here, you have your Bibles open, you'll see, as I was, as I was reading in, um, um, in verse 7, to those who are patient and well-doing, seek for God's glory and honor and immortality. They're going to get that favorable thumbs-up treatment. You got immortality. You got eternal life. See, that's what the righteous judge has to do. If there's righteousness, then he says, that's righteous. And if there's no righteousness, he says, that's not righteous. And he brings condemnation. If you look in verse 8, those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to get the wrath and the fury, which, by the way, is a reference back to verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's crazy when you realize how plain and simple he's echoing these words over and over. So God is the judge. And if you're following along with me, uh, God is impartial, I should say, I'll put it this way. Um, God is impartial as the judge of truth. He is an equal opportunity uh, con condemner. Okay? He offends everyone because all sin will receive its wages. The wages of sin is death. Okay, who gets to escape that? 
If all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way, then God's wrath is going to come, out, come upon all the sheep that have gone astray. He will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus chapter 34, 7. When God says that he's holy, 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 you're going to realize that he cannot bend the truth, he cannot uh, overlook wrongdoing, and he cannot say, oh, well, just because it's popular in our culture. And that's why the key words come here at the end of verse uh, 10 and 11, uh, at the end of verse 9, to the, Jew, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and in verse 10, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When you start looking here, God is impartial as the judge. He does not favor one group over the other. And he's laying this case even before he gets to the religious people. He says, whether you're one of these moralists that is, that is, uh, that is without God or you're moral with a religion, he says, God is going to still judge on the same standard. He is impartial. The Jew probably over here the religious person, or the Greek, probably the non-religious person. God is not going to say, well, these Greeks, they didn't have it all, so they get, they get an easier time of it. Or you could look at it. These Greeks, they didn't have the Bible. They just did their best, so it's okay. They did their best. Whereas he would look at the religious people, the Jews, those people, I've been working with them for thousands of years. And they don't even train their kids very well. Look at how, how, how they think they're so self-righteous. How they keep all these rules and they only do this and this. And Do you see? God is not impartial to the Jew or to the Greek. And you might say to the Jew first because he has sent Jesus to the Jews. But it's also to the Greek which is going to be the missionary aspect of the gospel after the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Because the gospel was to go to the Jews, to the religious community, and then it was go to the ends of the earth, to the Greeks, or to anybody that is barbarian as well. So you have that laid out in the foundation. Now, just digest that for a moment. God is impartial as a judge. Is that good or bad? Is God fair as a judge? Is that good or bad? See, this is the interesting thing, that when you understand that, that we're sinners, you might want to rejoice that God is fair. You know, you might want to rejoice that you can trust that God's going to render a righteous judgment. But the problem is, when God renders a righteous judgment on the moralist or on the religionist, the problem is he's going to condemn everybody. He's going to condemn you and me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he gets to in chapter 3 when you start to realize verse 10. This is not something that makes you feel warm and cozy. And yet, if you go to many churches in the, in the 21st century, how many of them talk about God being a judge? No, what is popular today is God is love. And that God loves everybody, and it's almost as if, by extension, that God loves everything. And God loves politicians that are for abortion, and God loves politicians that aren't for abortion. I mean, when you think about it, it almost sounds crazy. But yet, that's what we kind of think, because that's what our culture kind of says. Basically, God doesn't judge anymore, because God's nice. You know, the only people that judge these days are those old-fashioned people that believe the Bible, who haven't caught up to the enlightened way 
They haven't woke up to use the pun. Now, I'm trying to make this point as we're looking at this explanation about theos, is that if God is impartial and you know he's impartial and he's going to judge and he's going to condemn, but God can judge beautifully. He does say he has everlasting life for those who do what? Would you look back at verse 9 with me, or verse 7? To those who are patient and well-doing. Those who are seeking glory and honor and immortality. Do any of you seek for those things? Do we seek for glory of God, or do we seek for self-glory? Do we seek for honor for ourselves or for honor for God, the creator? Or do we seek for the eternal, the immortal you know, do we really look for what's beyond this world or are we only focused on what's going on in this world? The men, of, the men of Mordecai ministry is trying to equip men to be men while we occupy, but there is an, an, an emphasis there on being ready for what we're going to be getting in eternity. This is not all there is. This is just a campsite until God calls us home to the, to the place that he's gone to prepare for us, John chapter 14. Now, when you realize that God is the judge, he is the impartial judge of truth, he is the equal opportunity offender, all sins are going to receive their wages, whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek, if you're a sinner, you shall surely die. That is what's going to come upon every sin. Having nailed that, there's a couple other verses of Scripture that echo this, and I just highlight them. Um, Ephesians chapter 6 you end up having this thing that, that says God is not partial. And that's why he says to, to uh, people that are living in this world, treat people better. Don't treat them poorly because God is going to be the one that deals with you. And he's not going to have favorable treatment just because you have a gold ring or just because you have a business or because you have good looks or because you have youth or because you have education. There's no because. God will treat you fair. Now, when I realize this, and Colossians ends up, ends up saying the same thing. Um, Job ended up realizing it really well in chapter 32. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery words towards any person. You see, those principles go way, way, way back. And that's why when Paul declares that God is not partial, that he is impartial, that he is going to give a just treatment, it's really wonderful. Now, to get us ready for the communion table, I move to point number two. We know that God is impartial as the judge, but God is impartial as the creator of life. I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 1 and tell you that when God made the heavens and the earth, he was an equal opportunity provider. Now, some of us might not buy into all of this, but, but because all souls receive some grace from him, ever since the fall, people have not gotten what they deserved. Now, and I explain this for you. This is why God is, a, he is, he is an equal opportunity provider of common grace. Common grace. And, and Pastor, why do you bring that up? Because at chapter 6, chapter 2, verse 1, if Romans chapter 2, verse 1, look at how he starts. You, man, are without excuse. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 is, is our text today. And he's saying, there's no excuse for you. God has given common grace to everybody. It's sufficiently out there. He has provided it already so that even if you are not a God-fearer, even if you want to go around and, and, and pretend that there's no God, there's enough evidence for you to be able to see it. General revelation is out there. Common grace is there. And I could quote for you many texts, but I'll take you to the one in Matthew. Uh, I think Matthew chapter 24. 
Or Matthew 5, verse 45, where Jesus ended up explaining it really well. And in that particular text, he is saying that God treats just and unjust with some similarity. Okay, in fact, the text is, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and, and on the good. He sends the rain to the just and on the unjust. It, it's not really, it's kind of interesting. There's a fairness to it. Why doesn't God just bless everybody with everything? You see, this is why I'm trying to show you that when you understand from creation, God had already designed, even though he made male and female and made them distinctly different and said it was very good, he had diversity already built in and it wasn't manipulated and it wasn't up to our choice. Eve was a woman, Adam was a man, and it was very good. The diversity that God put in the garden was wonderful. But then sin enters in and pollutes all these things. And from that point in time, God continued to be gracious to men and women. He's been continuing mercy. Okay, and that's where you can go to multiple texts. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But God extended a grace towards mankind that we're still here. Because if you got immediate justice from the judge that is just, that is not partial, then when you sinned for the first time, guess what you deserved right then? You deserve Romans 1:18, the wrath of the Holy Father to be poured out on you right then. How many of you would have been able to sin the second time? Of course, you wouldn't be able to. So you can see that this common grace has been extended to all kinds of people because God has given us time. Now, there's another reason why God has extended that common grace because when the first sins were done, Adam and Eve had fallen in the garden and God said, I have a remedy for that, but it was not going to come until the fullness of time, which Galatians 4.4 says when Jesus came into this world. At the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem us. When you realize that God's timetable meant that there were going to be thousands of years pass, that meant that God was going to extend common grace to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Even though there weren't Jews and Greeks at that time, it was just to mankind. And God's common grace to mankind continued and continued and continued until God fulfilled his purpose on Calvary's cross. And we're focused on that with communion because everything pointed to Jesus coming and not just to have a good time on earth, but to be able to be hoisted up on that cruel cross and pay for our sins and say, it's done to tell us die. That was the purpose that was behind creation. It was the purpose that was behind we call providence. So once that was done, why didn't God just pack all the pieces back up in the box and take us to heaven at that point? You should know the answer. Because you weren't here yet. God's purpose was not only to save, to provide, it was to save people. As Paul says, of whom I am one of the chief sinners that he came to save. And I would echo that. I'm a chief sinner too. God's purpose was to save sinners even into the 21st century, even in the year 2023, and people can make profession of faith even as one did this very week. I heard with my own ears, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I understand why you died on the cross. It's because you love me. When you understand this gospel message, 
This common grace is, ex is extended to all mankind because of it, and that's point number two. And if you follow along on our sermons, the, uh, the third point is that God is partial as the Savior of sinners. And this is a little hard for some to swallow, but his impartiality is not saying, well, I've just got to stick with truth, and that's the only thing I can do. No, you're going to find that God is a little bit more involved than just being a judge that sits on the throne that doesn't know any of the players or doesn't get involved. In order for you to be saved, God had to authorize that the Son would be sent in the fullness of time, as I've just quoted. God has been a mover and shaker to bring about the terms of the covenant that he himself entered into with mankind. God said to Adam and Eve, you, if you keep this, you will live. That was the deal. The covenant of works. And mankind didn't keep it. They broke the covenant of works. They, they ate the forbidden fruit. They understood what evil was because they themselves had done it. And then they were under the wrath and curse of God. Romans 1.18 hadn't been written yet, but it was there already. The wrath of God immediately pours out on them. But there was enough grace that God didn't wipe them out and send them to hell then. And he told them, Adam and Eve... There's going to be a baby born, and that baby is going to do what the first Adam couldn't do. He's going to keep the covenant of works. And that's what Jesus did. So when you understand that God is not partial as the Savior of sinners, I want you to know that things are not all going to work out equally for everybody. God still this, is impartial, and he's going to judge right versus wrong. But everybody that he runs into is wrong. And so how does God not send everybody to hell? I mean, Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Lots of people on that broad way leading to destruction. But he also said, with hope, or with, with a hope for us, that there is another way, a narrow way that leads to life. And there are some that are on that narrow way. Now, there is a difference in uh, in these, in these uh, outcomes. You can't get equality out of it. You can't just say to everybody in this world or everybody that's in Delaware or for that matter, everybody that's in Sussex County, oh, we want to make everything work out equally. We want to have e equitable outcomes for everybody. You can't deliver that. There will be people who will be cast into the lake of fire in, in Revelation chapter 20. There will be people that will be caught away in a positive sense, 1 Thessalonians 4. They'll be caught up together to be with the Lord. But guess what happens to the rest? They won't be caught up together to be with the Lord. They'll be left behind. In John chapter 14, I've already mentioned it, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. Is he preparing it for everybody? He's preparing it for you, for those who are trusting in God, who realize that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the way to that special place, and he's going to come again and receive those people to himself. I've been quoting in other places in, in Exodus. Uh, you can read them for yourself, Exodus 33. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Uh, and it's echoed in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 to 18. Paul brings it up and says, God is free to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He can pardon whom he wants to pardon. But he is impartial because he's going to use the same standard. I do know that God also has some diversity because when I read the text of Scripture, it says one day that there's going to be people from the east and from the west or from the north and the south who will sit at table in the kingdom of heaven. 
It's a picture of communion. And when he talks about east and west and north and south, he's talking about the different continents. He's talking about the different cultures. He's talking about the people of this globe. God just didn't single out and say, oh, I only want these couple of people. No, God's grace extended to all kinds of people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. But not everybody who has a tongue, not everybody that's been a part of a tribe or nation will have the same outcome. There are those that are going to life and those that are not. Now, in our text, the judge sits there. Let me read them one more time. That he's going to, verse 6, he's going to render to each one according to the works. To the, to the ones who have the works of patience, uh, they've been working diligently for glory, honor, and immortality. They will get the terms of the covenant of works. They'll get eternal life. Okay, how many of you know somebody that has kept the covenant of works? By ordinary generation, somebody that you have seen walking on this earth? And the answer is none of us. What Paul is doing here is he's telling us about the judge who is going to have to render a verdict of guilty to everybody. No matter how positive you've been, no matter how you've tried to contribute to society, no matter how you've stayed away from some of the really bad things. You see, the soul that sins will surely die. So this message is not all a miserable thing because this is the indictment section. This is the bad news of the gospel. He's saying, hey, are any of you feeling self-confident? Are any of you feeling that you can get to heaven, that you can climb the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and get there? Do any of you feel like you're arrived? And the answer is no. None of us have any merit. None of us are able to say, yep, I'm worthy, or I, I really I mean, when I ask people, do you know for sure if you're going to heaven? When they say, I hope so, they're really telling me that they know they don't deserve it and they really don't think that they're going to get there. But because they don't know anything else, they're saying, well, I'd rather be optimistic than miserable. I hope so. I don't blame them for having that measure of hope because that means that there's, there is some glimmer that there's a way there even though they don't know it yet, because if they knew the way, the truth, and the life, they wouldn't hope they would know that they have eternal life. Do you know? The question that I raise in application is, who are the them? And, uh, and I'll read a couple of verses from uh, John chapter... Uh, uh, in fact, I have them here. From, from, you have them printed in your text. From John chapter 6, verse 39... From John chapter 7, verse, John 6, 39, when I bring up that text, you'll be able to see that, that there are some people uh, that, that are here. Um, you search the scriptures. Um, I'm looking at John chapter 6, verse 39. In fact, I'll find it in my text here. In John chapter 6, verse 39, you can find, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise them up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life. Now, the interesting thing, there's multiple verses that I could take you to, but I want to speed us through and say that, that when Jesus was about to go to Gethsemane, when he was having that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, uh, you end up finding him, he says, all that the Father hath given me, I won't lose any of them. So I'm asking the question in application, who are the them? 
The righteous judge who is impartial is going to bring down judgment based on the standard of truth. He looks at all the parties that are out there and he's trying to find, is there anybody that is going to get a favorable judgment? And in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he finds that nobody is earning or meriting a judgment of not guilty. Everybody, whether they've been from creation as an as a unthankful person or as a, uh, as a moralist, whether they're religious or rational, they are all guilty. And so you get to this place where, okay, God, who are the them that you're going to justify? Who is going to get eternal life? And that's why I ask this question. Are you one of them? Are you included? And this is interesting because do you have an equal opportunity to God's saving grace? There's a lot of people that, that are uncomfortable with the word elect. Okay, why would you be uncomfortable with election? Well, maybe after the last couple of elections in, a, in, the, in the U.S., you might not be confident about the election results because you don't know if that's really the will of the people. But the text is not, the biblical text about election is that God ends up making some decisions. And as we were talking about it in Sunday school today, God is free to make some decisions. He's able to call Abraham instead of calling his brother Nahor. You know, he is able to pick Isaac instead of Ishmael, even though Ishmael was 13 years older. Why is God able to do this? Because he is God. Okay, now, once you realize that God makes some determinations, our problem is in this text is who are the elect? And I want to give you a calming answer. I don't know. Do you know? I mean, when you guys come to join the church, and I hope everybody will, because it's an awesome time for you to stand before the elders and to be able to testify that you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. That's what church membership is. It's really nothing more and nothing less. We give you a little bit more training. But what we are looking for is whether you are testifying that you are trusting in what Jesus did on, the, on Calvary's cross. If you are one of them... Because if you're in one of them, you're already a brother and sister in Christ. But how do we know if you're one of them? So, we know because you told us so. How many of you believe politicians? They tell you what you want to hear. And the only thing you know is that some of them are better liars than others. Uh, maybe you know that some of them are better at trying to get what they promised than others. I'm not trying to be negative on them. One day, maybe I'll run for office. You know, we're, we're all fallen people that are going to try to do something, and some have more noble causes than others. But we really don't know what's going on inside the heart of man or a heart of women. You can assume things. Why? Because you've been burned before, so you'll probably be burned again, right? Somebody's let you down before, they're probably going to let you down again. And so the whole point is, don't put your faith in, any, in people anymore. And as a result, we withdraw, we withdraw, and we don't really put our faith in anything anymore except ourselves, and we let ourselves down. This whole idea of who are them is something that, that we get all twisted up on because as, as it says in chapter 2 or chapter 3, uh, he says, humanly speaking. In fact, I could probably take you to that verse uh, in chapter 3 of, of Romans um, when, when he says that, that humanly speaking, there is a sense in which, um, do I have that text in front of me? Uh, if you t turn to Romans chapter 3, you'll see it. Paul is trying to explain all this stuff to people. And as he says, uh, he, pardon? Chapter 3, verse 9. Yes, um, 
And I'll start there in verse 5, though. That's where it is. But if the unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I said, I speak in a human way. And then he says, the answer is by no means. So in, at the end of verse 5, you hear the Apostle Paul saying, let me show you from a human way, from a human perspective. Not from, from the, the halls of heaven, but let me tell you what it looks like from a human way. Now, I often say that when it comes to election, I love it because that gives me a guarantee that God is going to save to the uttermost all who call upon his name. God is going to work things together so that his sheep will be brought into the fold. And I'll even make one more bold case. I believe that the only reason we're still here is because there's still some people to be brought into the fold. There are some sheep that haven't been brought in. And it might even be my little grandson, Luke, that will be born this week. It better be this week before I go on the mission trip. You know, it might be that little Luke might be one of the last ones to be brought into the fold. I do not know, and neither do you. Don't be afraid of election. Don't be afraid of knowing that God has, the Father has given to the Son those that should be saved. And Jesus said, I will not lose any of them. I will surely raise them up in the last day. So the whole point here is, who are the them? And that's where I was reading for you in in chapter 2, you have your Bible still open, you can see it. To those who are saved, and that you find this in, um, I'll read again the, the, the rendering of, of eternal life in verse 7. God is going to render to those who practice, who have patience and well-doing, who seek the glory and honor and immortality, God will give them eternal life. But since nobody has it, no, not one, in chapter 3, then you have to find people who need something, some help. And that's why you find the hope that comes down in verse 21 of chapter 3. For he says, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed apart from law keeping. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. And there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God poured forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over their former sins. It was, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might still be the just judge as well as the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is the answer. This is why we come to the Lord's table. And if the elders would get ready to come, I'm going to lead in prayer. It is beautiful that the just judge is impartial because he judges by one standard, truth. When you understand that all of us have been condemned by the truth, then the only hope is that God would provide something in our place. He ends up providing a savior, a redeemer, who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he remained righteous. And when he was brought before the father to be judged, the father would say, not guilty. But in the garden of Gethsemane, as he had just had the high priestly prayer, he was speaking intimately to the Father. And in Gethsemane, he says the same thing. Lord, Father, is there any other way? And there is no other way. The wrath of God, the truth of the true judge has to come down and it has to punish sin. So Jesus said, I will drink that cup.
And as he drank that cup, that bitter cup of condemnation, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And while we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses, he was willing to bear in his body the punishment for our iniquity. Now you see that if you are trusting in Christ alone, if you're believing on him, you have this everlasting life. Because the just judge has poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of you. That's salvation. Being saved from God by God. By having the holiness of God being validated as it punishes sin. While the, the amazing love of God says, I love you and I'll take it for you. As we come to the Lord's table today, this is when you search your heart. Let's pray and do that. Our Heavenly Father, we do know that this message is one that we've heard before. But we may not have thought about the impartiality. We not ha may not have been realizing how bad our condition is. Apart from Christ's intervention, apart from him providing a righteousness that's apart from our performance, we are hopeless. But as we come to the table, you told us that we were supposed to remember that we were supposed to, by faith, embrace what you did already. The, the, the just, the righteous one for the unjust, the sinners like us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words from the cross tell us the whole understanding that you knew what you were doing in the midst of the agony and the pain and the condemnation being received. And you did it lovingly father forgive them these people don't even understand it but praise god we do now through the gospel we thank you in jesus name amen if the elders could come and have a seat at the table over here today we have the communion and the communion is going to be at the table as the elders are coming up the center aisle that's what we'll be asking you to be doing today and then you'll be standing in the center until the table is open. Please be seated. As the table is, is open, you'll be able to have a moment. If you, if you go back to Luke chapter 22, you're going to remember that there is a, uh, a story that actually was history. And in Luke chapter 22, you find that, the, that it was on the Passover. And what did you do at Passover if you were one of the religious people? Well, you'd have a feast. And you would remember the Passover of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. And if you remember the story, and I repeat it for you for your own edification, that the whole use of the word Passover is so that it, when I see the blood, I will pass over that house. And there was blood posted on the top of the door and on the sides. And when I make that motion, you can almost envision a cross. When the blood of the lamb was spilt, if you were in that household, there was going to be grace extended because judgment doesn't come where judgment already has been. The judgment at that household was upon a little animal who died. If their judgment had come on that little animal, then the judgment would pass over you and the firstborn of that household would not have to die. God was teaching the lesson of the gospel. In Luke chapter 22, when they were, um, when they were um, 
in the upper room. They were going to enjoy the Passover meal. And as they came together, Jesus told them to do it different. You don't need to have a blood of an animal. And as a result, he comes and he has the bread, the unleavened bread, and then he has the fruit of the vine. And what does he do with those things? He says, these are symbolic of me. I'm the Lamb of God. I've come to take away the sins of the world, your sins. As we come to the table today, my encouragement to you is to ponder what Jesus has done. Just like the disciples did in Luke 22. They sat up there and Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he's having them partake of the, of the bread, symbolic of how he was going to die on Calvary's cross in just a matter of hours. After that, he took the cup and when he, he lifted it up and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. This is the terms of the covenant being met in my blood. And he said, the cup that I'm giving to you is different from the cup that I'm drinking. He is going to leave from the upper room. He's going to go down to Gethsemane and he's going to drink the bitter cup which is going to culminate with his blood being spilt on Calvary's cruel cross on Good Friday. The cup that he gives to his disciples is a sweet cup. Today, I offer you the bread and the sweet cup. And I challenge you, as Jesus taught the disciples and as Paul echoed in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me, as Jesus said. Discern what I did for you. Understand that your guilty condemnation I took that judgment from the just judge so that you could be declared justified. There's going to be a quiet music. You'll be coming up the middle section. In fact, you can get up now to come up. I'm going to serve the elders, and then each of the elders will go to one of the tables. If you're not comfortable coming forward, uh, there will be one elder who will be looking around to come serve you where you are. So let us do that right now.